Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to a new episode of Science Stories. Today I'm really excited to introduce you to my guest. Alejandro, how are you doing? Very good. What about yourself? Good, good. Thanks. So Alejandro Pitaluga, he's a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University. He has a Bachelor in Agriculture Engineering in Uruguay. And then he also has a Master of Science in Beef Cattle Nutrition. And right now you're still working on Beef Cattle Nutrition, right? Exactly, yeah. More specifically, Feedlot Cattle Nutrition. Nice. So the first word that caught my attention when I was reading your work is roughage. What is, th is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Roughage. Roughage, exactly. Can you, can you please tell me what roughage is? Yeah, so when we talk about roughage in ruminant nutrition, we are basically referring to a forage-based feed ingredient that contains at least 40% of fiber uh, in a dry matter basis. So For you to have an idea, roughage uh, can be classified as either fresh or conserved. Where, for example, a pasture uh, is a good example of a, of a fresh roughage source, and hay or silage is a good example of a conserved roughage source. These roughage sources are, are rich in fiber, which is a carbohydrate with a pretty complex physical structure. It's rough to digest, and so that's why it's sometimes called roughage source. So it basically is harder for them to digest. Exactly. That's that's basically why it's called, what the, why they are sometimes referred to as roughage source. Mm -hmm. And the way that you mention or it's n neutral detergent fiber, the way or the unit you use to measure it. Yeah, exactly. So the the, the NDF method or the neutral detergent fiber, it's the way that how we frequently measure the content of fiber uh, of a feed ingredient that we use on, on ruminants diets. So basically what the NDF method, the NDF method does is it uses a, a, a neutral detergent to extract the, the soluble components in, in neutral detergent of fiber, which are cellulose, semicellulose, and lignin. They, they, they constitute basically between 80 to 90% of, of the fiber in a feed ingredient. And so that's, that's how basically this NDF method quantifies the amount of fiber in a, in a feed ingredient. Mm -hmm. Alejandro, when, when given a choice, Cattle prefer a lower roughage diet. Is this because yep. there might be a correlation between roughage and other food aspects such as flavor or calories or, or, yeah. or why is it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so both factors that you mentioned uh, actually influence or determines uh, cattle feed preferences. So first, let me point out something that, that is, it's, it's a pretty important fact that uh, the, the bovine species They have more than one tasting bud per lingual papillae. So that's why they, they first pick their feed ingredients based on the taste and not in the smell, like, for example, sheep. Okay. There are other so ruminant species, 
but don't have more than one this taste bud per, per lingual papilla. They have to, to try it. To taste exactly, it. exactly. Mm -hmm. So first they taste it and they use the, the, the flavor of, of each feed ingredient to select what they are ingesting. And the second thing that you mentioned also uh, is that uh, they also pick their food based on the on the nutritional quality of that feed ingredient because basically they have some uh, chemical sensors in the gut that sense nutritional aspects of the food and actually condition the animal to select a, a certain feed ingredient. So they know they know exactly what to. They are their own nutrition. Exactly, <laughs> they they can pretty much be, be their own nutritionists. That's amazing. In some cases, yeah, that's yeah. super interesting. Yeah. Alejandro, in a study that you published last year in um, in translation on animal science, I think it is, yep. the the, the um, journal, you yep. mentioned, and I'm quoting here, that one steer on the DHF treatment was removed from the experiment for reasons not related to the treatments. Yeah. Do you, do you remember what yeah. happened to that steer? So that's basically a way we used to, a delicate way to say that the steer now is, is in a better place. It's in a better place. Yeah, okay. so we cannot say that the steer just died. Yeah. So... And and in that study also, it says that yeah. steers were weighed in two consecutive days at the beginning and at the yeah. end of the experiments. And in the end, you you find uh, body weight differences that are in the range sometimes of two kilos between yeah. treatments. Yeah. And I wonder if you if you consider if those differences could be affected by whether or not the animal has had the positions before or after being weighted. Is that something that you you need to consider or not? Uh, yeah, of course that. So let me explain. Let me go further a little bit. So yes, more deep into the into the into this aspect. So to have a precise estimation of the body weight of the animal, we must weight the animal as empty as possible. And when I say empty, uh, it means to decrease the relative weight of the of the digester that is in the gut of the animal. So when we weigh the animal uh, in two consecutive days. Uh, what we are doing is that we are avoiding the, the errors associated to gut feel, so to, to water and feed intake. So when the animal ingests water and feed, the gut, the gut feel increases, so the relative proportion of digestion increases, and this uh, sometimes generates errors based on the, on, the feed, on the individual feed and water intake. So um, what we also do is that we, we don't only weigh the animal in two consecutive days, we also weigh them before feeding, also to decrease this uh, gut error, this gut feel error. And regarding the positions that you, you were mentioned, uh, the fact that we weigh the animals before feeding them, uh, the depositions during that period help to, end, to empty the, the, the gut of the animal, and that contributes to a more precise estimation mm -hmm. of, the, of the body weight. So it contributes to, the, to the, a precise estimation of the body weight, like you were saying. The, does the weight of the steer or, or heifers change a lot when they're empty and when they're not? Yeah, yeah, they can change, They can pretty much change how, a lot. How much, more or less, do you know? Sometimes they can go more than 10% of, the, of their body weight. 10%? Yeah. Wow. So just for you to have an idea, um, when we slaughter, when when we process mm -hmm. in the slaughterhouse an animal that, that comes from the feedlot, so a, a grain-fed animal, uh, the relative weight of the digester is between 12 to 15% of the body weight of the animal. So if, it's, if we usually slaughter animals with 600 kilos, so that's, that yeah, means yeah, that... Yeah, it's a lot. It's significant. Exactly. Right? Like yeah. 90 kilos correspond to, to, to the weight of the digester, of mm -hmm. the food and the water that is in the, is, it's in the gastrointestinal tract of the animal. Alejandro, can you please 
walk us through what are the main carcass characteristics that you evaluate and and one that caught my attention in particular is the 12 rib fat yeah. content why do you measure that one in particular yeah so basically the, the the carcass characteristics that we measure is are the ones that are more economically relevant uh, for the industry or for, for the producer so for you to have an idea the the u.s grading system established the, the price of the carcass based on the on the on, on two aspects on the quality grade and on the yield grade so the quality grade that basically measures meat quality uh, depends on two things, on the age of the animal and the marbling score that corresponds to the amount of intramuscular fat. Okay. So what we are looking for usually is we want animals uh, less than 30 months of age, so basically young animals, and with a high content of, of, of marbling score of intramuscular fat. As you, may re as you can remember from any, any time that you went to the supermarket, the three main quality grades are prime, choice, and select, being prime, the one of the highest quality, and select the one of the of the lowest quality and then you have the yield grade that the yield grade doesn't does not measure meat quality but it measures uh, the carability percentage of that carcass so the amount of lean meat that you can extract uh, from that carcass okay so and how do they determine this this yield grade the first of all it's measured in a scale that goes uh, from a one to a five and what they consider is the, 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 the weight of the carcass that we call as hot carcass weight. It also considers the, the ribeye area, that the ribeye area is directly related to, to the amount of muscle that you have, also the amount of meat that you have in the carcass, and then the amount of fat in the subcutaneous depot and on the visceral depot. Mm -hmm. Ideally, what, what we are looking for is carcasses with a yield weight that goes from, from a one to a three. Um, that means that our carcass with a high catability percentage that you can get a, a fair amount of extractable lean meat. And we don't want yield weights four or five that corresponds to, to overly fat animals. Uh, and when we get these this yield weights, the, the industry uh, make us fair economical discounts. So the market pretty much is, is determining what, what carcass characteristics are you looking at, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So and, and what about the, yeah. the 12 fat? Yeah, the, the twelve rib fat. Sorry. Yeah. So, let me explain first that that the rib area uh, is is the area of the longissimus dorsi muscle, that is a, a, a muscle with a with a high economical value, mm -hmm. basically because it's it's a very tender muscle. So, if you make a transversal cut between the the twelve and the thirteen rib of the animal, you are practically in the middle of the longissimus dorsi muscle. And so that's that's where basically uh, we measure or the or the industry measures the area of the ribeye. So the thickness of the fat layer at, at the 12 rib, uh, at the 12 rib level, which is in the middle of the longissimus dorsi, is what determines the value of the subcutaneous fat thickness that the industry est uh, uses to estimate the yield grade. So basically, this fat thickness in the 12 rib uh, is used as a, as a strong indicator of the total amount of, amount of subcutaneous fat thickness that then, then they use in the equation to determine the, the yield grade. So, so that's basically how they determine yeah. amount of subcutaneous fat thickness. It's, a, it's an easier way to make exactly, sure. Yeah, exactly. It's a good indicator, exactly. I guess. It's nice, interesting. Logistically yeah. and in, in, in a time-based manner, mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty efficient and yeah. convenient. Alejandro, I really like your study in which you evaluate the use of glucoamylase, right? Yep. Is that how you say it? Glucoamylase. Exactly, that's correct. It's an enzyme, right? Yep. And from what I understood from, from, from the article, which is really interesting, is that 
it's a way to increase the digestibility of starches. Yep. Right? Yep. You add this enzyme into their feed and this increases their digestibility and I guess it helps them put more weight or exactly. fa faster. Yep. My question is, is this um, like a probiotic, a yogurt or what, what, what do you feed them with? Yeah, so basically, so let me first explain that the, the, this, that just um, adding an, an amylolytic enzyme to a high starch diet nowadays uh, to increase the starch digestion is, is not a common practice. So, uh, because basically we don't have enough scientific data to, to support the, the utilization of these expensive products. So nowadays in the market, there are a bunch of enzyme, amylolytic enzyme-based products. Most of them did not show promising results, but the one that we use in, in, this, in this trial showed actually, actually promising results where we, we increase the feed efficiency of the animal uh, based on an increase on, on, on the digestibility of the diet. So, but going specifically to, to your question, mm -hmm. uh, it's not a probiotic by definition and not a prebiotic by definition. It's just an enzyme-based product. Just We classify it as a feed additive. Yeah, and this enzyme comes from a fungus. Exactly, yeah, in this case, Uh, so glucomylases are in every, basically in every animal species, right? Mm -hmm. We have them in the, they are secre secreted by the enterocyte in the small intestine mm -hmm. uh, to digest simple sugars that, that comes from the, from the digestion of starch. Mm -hmm. And so, but in this case, we use amylolytic enzymes that were extracted from a fungus culture, specifically in our trial from this, the fungus species uh, Trichoderma risae. Mm -hmm. And of course, that you extract them from, from microbes because it's, it's logistically and economically more feasible and, it's easier, and profitable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you say, so I, I like that um, most studies actually measure the effect on digestion. Yeah. And you in your study, you actually measure the end product, right? If, if, if the steers are actually putting more weight. Yeah. And, yep. and you say it, it, it works. It's, you found so significant I can results. Yeah. So, Based on the data that we have, I can only say that it works for us in our specific trial, mm -hmm. in our experimental conditions using uh, this product. But at the end, what we can say is that we we, we kind of saw mm -hmm. what we were expecting to see. Because nice. when we are feeding cattle, what we are looking for is, is feed efficiency. We want them to, to, to eat the less possible to, to gain one kilo of body weight. Yeah. And so if we actually... And for example, in a typical feedlot diet, we like the diet has like more than 70% of corn. Mm -hmm. So corn is rich in starch. So in those diets, the, the main energy substrate for the animal is starch. So if we, if we find a way to increase starch digestibility, we will find we will probably find a way to increase feed efficiency and make that animal consumes less to win the same amount of body weight. And And, and going to your question, not to yeah. forget that the, 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 the look of the product is mm -hmm. like, it's not like a yogurt. It was like a, like a honey, a honey? Okay. but with a brown color, mm -hmm. but not, not like a dark brown. It was, it was more like a light brown and less dense. It was more like watery consistency. Could you tell if the cows liked it? I think that they like it. Yeah. 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 Do, a, do you expect this yeah. practice to spread? Is it, is it cost effective as well? Yeah. So... Again, nowadays, I cannot say it's cost-effective because mm -hmm. the products are pretty expensive and we didn't have any, scientifically, we didn't have consistent uh, good results 
So nowadays, is, this technology in general is like in diapers. So they are not widely applied by, by the farmers. But I think that if scientifically we keep generating uh, positive information regarding the benefits to, to the animal and, and increases in feed efficiency, and this benefit overweights the, the cost of the product, uh, I have no doubt that the farmers will at least consider to... to Including uh, to include, it yeah, yeah, exactly. as a common practice. Yep. Alejandro, we need to go to a short break. Okay. Let's see how smooth this goes. Let's go. We're listening to... Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. Science Stories. contarle amigo que no puede soportar estar más de cuatro días con su gente sin fumar y qué va a ser si él es así si alguien lo juzga ya se puede arrepentir A ese caballo le brilla el ojo como la noche viva en la redonda oscuridad. Ese caballo. All right, we're back with science stories here with Alejandro. What are we listening to? So we're listening to the song Ese Caballo, which means that horse mm -hmm. of Santiago Chalar. That is an Argentinian singer. Wait, why did you pick it? I don't know. It's just kind of transports me to a, takes me to a, a morning in the in a in a farm in Uruguay with the sunrise, the drinking mate. What's mate? So mate is what we what we drink in in Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. That is sort of a of an infusion with herbs. It's like a tea uh, with a combination of, of herbs. Uh, that we usually we drink it to to wake up because it has a, a fair amount of caffeine. So we don't drink much coffee back there. Back there. I actually knew what mate is. I I, I, I just want to see how how you describe Yours, it. I, I think you describe it per, uh, you're perfectly. Yeah. Teasing me? <laughs> no, I'm not teasing. Okay, Alejandro. Most of the meat we eat comes from steers, right? Yeah, right. That's why. That's why? Right. Why is that? Is it because heifers are used for procreation or? Or is it because there's a meat difference, or what, what's yeah, going exactly. on? Which That's one is better? What you mentioned, like for to, for you to have an idea, more than 50% of the cattle that is annually slaughtered in, in the U.S. are steers, and the heifers and the cows, which are the female gender of the bovines, uh, they represent a lower percentage because they are kept in the farm. Some of them are kept in the farm for reproduction purposes, but regarding the uh, possible differences in meat quality, no. There is no difference between the beef quality of, of steers and heifers. But one thing, something that is interesting is that um, from the feeding industry and as a nutritionist, we usually prefer uh, to feed steers uh, 
because they are they are more efficient. They are, their feed efficiency is greater. So what, what do you mean by that? So more efficient. They need to eat less feed, less kilos of feed, uh, to put one kilo of body weight. Mm -hmm. And this is this is basically because uh, per unit of retained tissue, so per units of of, of kilo of body weight gain in a day, the relative proportions of muscle uh, relative to fat is greater. So because of the greater potential to, of, of steers to put muscle compared to heifers, that they put more fat, uh, they are more more efficient. So because to, to put one kilo of muscle is energetically cheaper than putting uh, one kilo of fat because the muscle tissue has 70% of water, which is energetically free for the animal. Mm -hmm. Is it also faster as well? Yeah. Yeah, they, they grow they faster, grow faster, as faster well. exactly. Yeah. So they, they put more meat and faster. Exactly. So that's why we eat steers. Uh, exactly. And yeah. I mean that's that's not the main reason. The main reason mm -hmm. is because again, uh, cows and heifers, so the, the the female gender. Yeah. Most of some of them are, are kept for for, for reproduction purposes. Mm -hmm. Alejandro, most of the meat that we eat comes from a specific cow breed or is it a mixture or Yeah, I would say that it's a it's a mixture but with a common denominator that it's Aberdeen Angus. Uh, so here in the US, like the overall beef herd, it's, it's pretty heterogeneous uh, in terms of the breeds. Uh, but I think that that, that is reflects the diversity of the environments where, where cattle are raised uh, here in the, in the US, which is pretty diverse. Uh, and I, if, if, if I don't, uh, if I, I think that if I remember more than 80 breeds, Uh, and crosses of cattle have been reported to exist in the, U in the U.S., a lot. which is it's crazy. Yeah. Is, this, is this way more diverse than other countries? Yeah, way more, way more. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, it's, it's pretty diverse, but the common denominator is, is Angus. So and, and why Angus? When you question, like, wh what do you expect uh, from a breed, from a, diff from a certain cattle breed, is to perform efficiently in, in the environment you are raising that animal. And so what Angus brings to the table, so... They have a, a, a pretty high growth potential, so they, they, they put a fair amount of muscle and they grow efficiently. They have a good capacity to, to put fat in the intramuscular level, which, of course, improves uh, beef quality, and that's why you heard everywhere all around the globe about Angus beef, mm -hmm. Angus beef this, Angus beef that, and the prices are usually higher. And, and also because, in general, they, they adapt pretty good uh, to the environments in the U.S., especially to temperate weathers, because the Angus comes from originally from Scotland and they are adapted to, to, temperate, to, temperate, weather. to temperate weathers. So what about Texas and the Texas yeah, summer that's, heat? That's a great question. In, in the, if here in the U.S., in those warmer states or with a warmer climate, mm -hmm. what farmers do is they cross Aberdeen Angus with Bosch Indicus cattle that they are much better adapted to, to, to perform efficiently in, in hot weathers. And that's where you have different breeds like the, the Brangus, For example, that is pretty common here in the south of Texas. Basically, what you are doing is just you are conferring to the Angus uh, the capacity to, to perform efficiently and to support this, to tolerate these hot weathers. Mm -hmm. They use that a lot, right? Mixing yeah. breeds in order to, yeah, a lot. to obtain yeah. different characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. But all the beef that we're eating, again, has some degree of Angus. Some degree of yeah. Angus, okay. Regarding feedlot versus grass-fed, I'm gonna I'm gonna move now to more general wow. questions, right? This is a controversial I, I think it, question. Yeah, I think this yeah. is a really broad question, right? Yeah. But but and controversial. Yeah, regarding feedlot and grass-fed. Yeah. Do you see any big differences or issues between them? And I, I 
I think there's many ways to look at this, right? Yeah. So let's let's first define like grass fed and grain fed mm -hmm. like as a different as a different system. Okay, like grain production system. Exactly. Yeah. Grass fed means that the animal uh, most of the diet of the animal comes from the grass uh, in a grazing system. And in grain fed most of the of the diet of the animal comes from concentrates and grain. So and of course common sense uh, we don't, you don't have to be a scientist to know that these systems are, are pretty pretty different. But I think that the most thing the, the most important thing to 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 understand here is that both systems are, are complementary to each other. How, not, how so? They are not enemies. For example, in, in the US, everybody, 95% of the ninety-five percent of the animals that we annually slaughter comes from the field, so are grain-fed, basically. But the, we are going to explain that later as, 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 as grain-finished. Mm -hmm. But uh, since, the, since the animal is born, until they are 12 to 14 months of age, that is where they enter the feedlot, they are, they are in, in, in a pasture or in a grazing system. And then we slaughter them with 18 to 20 months of age in average. So that means that two-thirds of the life of the animal is in a, in a, in a, in a grass-based system. So we can say that the U.S. is a, is a, is a grass-fed grass system. So wait, it's not then feedlot or grass-fed? Exactly. It's, it's, it's not, both. It's not feedlot or, or, or grass. They are complementary to each complementary. other. First yeah. is grass-fed and then exactly. you First is grass-fed. And since the animal is born until 50 months of age, 15 months of age, something some, somewhere around, somewhere near there, uh, and then they spend like between five to six months in the feedlots, and then they are slaughtered. And what about the taste of the meat? Yeah. So do you notice a difference between grass fed yeah, and a, can you can you taste it? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, huge. It's you which can, one do you like better? I mean, yeah, so if I have to pick one, I would put, pick uh, grain-fed. Grain-fed? Yeah, so you know, in my case, I'm from Uruguay. Uh, I was born and raised uh, eating grass-fed, so that's why I basically like grass-fed or I can tolerate grass-fed, uh, but I prefer grain-fed. Yeah, it's much more, it's tastier, it's tender, it's juicier. Yeah, I think grass-fed doesn't compete with grain-fed. No? No. And what about environmentally? And uh, something that I wanted to mention, and mm -hmm. this is, someone can say like, oh, this is a pretty subjective, oh, it's not objective, yeah. no? People yeah. want to eat what they are used to it. Yeah. But when you go to the industry, the industry pays you more if it's grain-fed than if it's grass-fed. So yeah. I think that's where the subjectivity, subjectivity ends. ends. Yeah, they just pay more. Yeah, so, we're yeah. here to make money, not to, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, what about environmentally? Is there any differences between grass-fed and feedlot? Yeah, so... Again, this is a very controversial question, mm -hmm. and as you may know, I came to Texas for a for a congress that is the Plain Nutrition's Congress. That mm -hmm. is a pretty big congress here between Texas, Nebraska, Oklahoma. How did it go? The feedlot industry, the PNC Plains Nutrition Council, that is in in San Antonio. How did it go? How? Yeah, really it? good. It was great. Yeah. yeah, met a lot of people, did some networking, <laughs> and discussed about climate change and and beef cattle nutrition, but. Yeah, this was the, the, the hottest topic of all, of all of them. It was like pretty controversial. Uh, farmers get angry, scientists get angry, everybody gets angry. On this particular subject, yeah, on grass-fed versus feed. Yeah, but no, no, not in the beef quality or mm -hmm. in the systems in the in the system overall, but about the, the, the environmental impact, specifically the impact on, of beef cattle production on green greenhouse gases emission and the global warming. But this is basically because that this. I mean, we have we have a bunch of information, but all this information is not uh, it's not very uh, reliable, no. 
So it's, 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 it's pretty... What do you mean by that? It's not reliable in terms that when you analyze how they measure the, emission of, of the emissions of greenhouse gases in all the process, because here like, you have to take into account all the emissions, all the gases, the greenhouse gases that are emitted to the atmosphere in, in all the process to produce one kilo of beef. Yeah. And that takes a lot of work and a good link between the different the, 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 the scientific groups that study the emissions in the different sectors of the chain. Yeah. So we have a bunch of information, but it's, it's not re quite reliable. And so it's pretty de debatable. So you cannot say whether Nowadays, so, or grass yeah, I mean, so let me just explain that the biggest problem that we are now facing environmentally uh, in the in the ruminant production, but in the specifically in the in the beef color production is methane. Mm -hmm. So methane it's a, it's a very powerful greenhouse gas that is approximately 28 times uh, more powerful to retain radiation from the sun mm -hmm. compared to carbon dioxide. And this this methane it's produced in the rumen of the animal. Uh, when the when the feed is fermented, so for digestion purposes, and then all that methane in the rumen it's, it's emitted to the to the atmosphere through burping. So just basically the animal just burps this, this methane to the atmosphere and contributes to to global warming. And so when we feed roughage or forage compared to to grain or concentrates, the animal emits and produces more methane. So in that sense, you can say okay producing one kilo of beef in a, in a, in a forest-based base system or a grass-fed system, uh, you are emitting more methane than grain-fed. Mm -hmm. But then when, when you take into account all the carbon dioxide that it's been captured by the, by the forage uh, to grow, uh, to synthesize their own carbohydrates to grow, uh, in the balance, uh, the, the, the difference are pretty tight between grass-fed and grain-fed. Mm -hmm. So like, nowadays, we cannot say which one is more environmentally friendly you know mm -hmm. we can say that yeah a grass fed system emits more but uh, we cannot say that it's uh, less environmentally friendly because you are taking a lot of carbon dioxide from, from the atmosphere absolutely yeah but it's yeah alejandro since we are with these controversial questions and you are a person that has such a culture of meat and meat eating right yeah what do you think of vegans and vegetarians yeah so i think that i truly respect them i have a a bunch of friends that are vegetarians or, or vegans. Some of them are some of my best friends. And I think that people are basically entitled to, to eat what they want. But I don't know, the only thing that I, I could say is that uh, most of them are, they have really good intentions, but they are not well informed. So something what, that- What do you I, mean by that? So, and, and I can also include myself in, in some, some I, I can say that uh, most of us are sometimes ignorant in, in all these these, uh, these areas or mm -hmm. these topics. And for example, uh, last week I heard uh, a talk uh, from a, a German professor in, in UC Davis, mm -hmm. and he was saying that uh, they saw that the amount of carbon dioxide, for example, if you decide to go vegan or vegetarian because yeah. uh, you, want to, you don't want to contribute to global warming mm -hmm. um, by supporting uh, beef or, or, or milk or dairy production, and you, and you say, okay, I will go vegan and vegetarian, uh, the amount, when you take all the, the methane, carbon dioxide, and, and all these global warming gases to a carbon dioxide equivalent, yeah. the amount of carbon dioxide that you are saving for going vegan or vegetarian uh, for one year, especially if going vegan, mm -hmm. it's lower than the amount of carbon dioxide that you will 
emits to the atmosphere. If, for example, I decided to go for a vacation in, in Europe, so a long the, flight, the plane flight yeah, a long distance flight emits more carbon dioxide than what you say exactly in one year. Exactly. As a, as a, wow. So, I mean, I'm not saying that don't do it or like I, I, mm -hmm. I will not uh, punish you because you will of course, yeah, yeah. go vegan or vegetarian. But no, but it's really interesting. You need to be saying, well yeah. informed, not to be an, an hypocrite. You know. Yeah, yeah. Alejandro, for normal people, what are some quick guidelines to buy meat at the supermarket and when i say normal people i i mean not professionals in meat quality yeah. like like you are yeah yeah what what should we look at so the most important guidance first of all is the type of cut when you go to a supermarket and you know which cuts you have experience buying beef and you know which cut is is, is more or less tender always pick based on the on the on the cuts then if your budget allows to go for 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 a for better quality grade stamp uh, for example i don't know if, if for example you, you like ribeye because you know it's a it's a very tender uh, cut search for a for a choice or a prime stamp in the package which means that uh, that ribeye is even more tender more juicer and more more tastier because it has more intramuscular fat what is your personal personal preference so again if i but if my budget allows me to Uh, and I have a, a comfortable budget. I will go for the New York strip. Mm -hmm. I love the New York, the, the New York strip with a with a choice stamp in the package. It's, it's an amazing eating experience. Mm -hmm. And but if, if my budget is a little bit tight, mm -hmm. which frequently happens, <laughs> uh, I will go for the chuck eye steak. Uh, that is a cut from the from the upper shoulder of the of the animal, and it's, it's pretty tender, juicer, and and, and tasty. But it's it's and the price is, is great. It's like seven dollars per pound. So nice. it's, I nice. think it's 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 quality is quite underestimated. And what about if you have the same cut? How do you pick between two different yeah, you, steaks? Like you what, what do you look at? Color or okay, exactly? You, so we refer to to the color. So let me just briefly explain the the importance of color and, and how is the color of yeah. beef determined. Please. So what you, consumers usually prefer that uh, cherry bright color of, of, of beef uh, because it's a strong indicator of, of, of freshness. So, so the redder, the exactly. fresher? The, the, the brighter the red means for the consumer that the, the beef is, is fresher. What? So it's an indicator of freshness. And is, is it true? It's, it's not entirely true. It's, it's partially true. It's not entirely true. Because let me just explain how this the color of beef is determined. So there's a, a, a pigment protein in, in beef Uh, that is called uh, myoglobin. So when this myoglobin is exposed to air, to oxygen, it reacts with the myoglobin and oxygen reacts and forms the, the what we call the oxymyoglobin. And this oxymyoglobin is what gives beef that cherry bright color, cherry red black, bright, uh, bright color. But this doesn't mean that if the if the beef is not cherry cherry bright red and it's maybe like a little bit purple red or brown red, doesn't mean that the product is, is not fresh. For example, when you buy a, a, a vacuum pack cut of beef, it's, it's how darker. we usually buy, for example, yeah. in Uruguay, you can see like, that the, the beef is more purple, right? Yeah. But that's just because there's no, no contact, with contact oxygen. of oxygen yeah. with myoglobin. So the beef is, is, is still fresh, is like yeah. maybe fresher than the cherry bright red, mm -hmm. but just because of the lack of contact of oxygen with, with myoglobin. And sometimes also because of the exposure Of, of beef with the light in the in the stores, for example, turns the myoglobin a little bit a little bit brown, mm -hmm. and again that doesn't mean that the that the the beef is spoiled or it has gone bad. It's just that for different aspects, 
the, the color is different. That's super interesting. Exactly. Yeah. But of course, that the industry always look for that cherry red, uh, bright red because you are trying to, to, to sell it. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. To influence consumers' preferences. All right, Alejandro, we're going to go for another short break and then we will be back with more science stories. Sounds great. Sunday morning, man, she woke up fighting mad. Bitching and moaning on and on about the time I had. And by Tuesday, you could say that girl was good as gone. All right, we're back with Science Stories here with Alejandro. What are, what are we listening to now? So we're listening to Michael Ray, Whiskey and Rain. Why did you pick it? I think it's catchy. You um, like it? My wife likes it, so... Did you did you know the song before coming to the US? No, no. no you no. picked it up yeah, here? Yeah, I actually heard it. In a, we heard it with my wife in a, uh, in a radio in, in Lexington. Mm -hmm. and it was pretty catchy. Nice, nice. Alejandro, do you think meat... The way, in the direction we're going, do you think meat is going to be a luxury in the future? Yeah, so uh, I would say that nowadays in countries like in the U.S., beef is, is already a luxury. But I think that in the future, in the future it's going to become even more luxurious. I think that people will always have uh, some degree of access to, to, to low-quality beef, but high-quality beef will become even more luxurious. Because of, I mean, if you if we do some basic reasoning, by 2050, uh, the FAO says that the predicts that we will have two billion more people in the the, the the world population will increase by two billion, so we'll have to produce 70% more food uh, to feed those extra two billion, and so yeah, it's going to be tough and expensive. Exactly, yeah. and like from the total ice-free land in the world, only 30% is suitable for for agriculture. Uh, so, like yeah. basic reasoning, land prices will increase, it's production tighter. costs will increase, and high-quality beef, will be uh, will, the cost of high-quality beef uh, will increase. So, yeah, yeah, it becomes, it will for sure becomes more luxurious. Is fattier meat tastier? Is that a fact? It's a fact. It's a fact. And yeah. why is that? So, for example, when, when, when you have a, a, a beef cut that is highly marble, so that means that it contains a fair amount of intramuscular fat. It becomes more tender, juicier, and tastier. Because when we when we talk about like, does the does the fattier beef is taste is the fattier beef tastier? We cannot we cannot just analyze the taste. We have to analyze the the palatability. Mm -hmm. And the palatability it's like the eating experience. So okay. it is the taste, uh, the tenderness, and the juiciness. When you have more fat between the muscle fibers, so in the intramuscular fat, that meat becomes more tender, more juicier, and more tastier. Mm -hmm. it, becomes, it becomes more tender because basically the fat tissue, the adipose tissue, it's less dense than the, than the muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. So if you're incre increasing the relative proportions in a cut of, of fat. fat, you're increasing the relative proportion of, of a softer tissue. Mm -hmm. So that's, that cut becomes softer in texture. So that, that's just like basic 
yeah, yeah. relative proportions. Yeah. And then it becomes it becomes also more tender because those fat cells between the muscle fibers, they di disrupt the structure of collagen. Collagen is the main protein structure in muscle tissue. And that's what provides uh, toughness to the beef. So it disrupts the, the structure, so it becomes more tender. And then it's also juicier because it, uh, fat once in the mouth stimulates salivary secretion to a greater extent. Mm. So that gives you a, a, a sensation taste, of yeah. exactly of, 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 of more mouthfeel. Exactly, mm -hmm. like that something is juicier. And actually, we call that the, the, the sustained juiciness because while chewing, that juiciness is sustained because you have a constant stimulation of the salivary glands and saliva that's going into your mouth. My mouth is starting to water right yeah, now. Yeah, mine too. Alejandro, I have to ask you, I, I go to the supermarket and I see, it's a, it's a huge deal about Wayu, Wayu meat? Wayu, Wayu? Yeah, the Wagyu. Wagyu yeah. meat. What's, yeah. what's, what's going on there? So, talking about luxurious beef. So, yeah, the, the Wagyu beef is, I think, is the, the best quality beef that you can find nowadays in, in, in the market. Basically, because this, this Japanese breed, originally from Japan, mm -hmm. I don't know if you, if you knew, but Wagyu actually means Japanese cattle. So it's oh. a very broad yeah. uh, term. It's like all Japanese cattle. Okay. But we will go further into that later. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this Japanese cattle or Wagyu beef, they have a, a great genetic potential to put fat between the muscle fibers, so to increase the intramuscular fat. So that provides the, the overall, a greater overall parallelability. They have the highest marbling exactly. scores. So they have the highest marbling scores. And so... The, so their beef is so good because it's so fatty. Exactly, exactly. Huh. So it's just like a delicatessen. You cannot eat like a pound of beef of a highly marbled wagyu beef because the next morning you're yeah. for sure going to regret it. It's <laughs> a delicatessen. So it's just a small piece and really delight it and taste it mm -hmm. and enjoy it. So I know you've been around. You've been in, in Uruguay. You've been in Australia. Yeah. And now you live in the US for a couple yeah. of years. I've been around. Yeah. Do you have any interesting observations of how people raise cows in these different places you've been? Yeah, so when you compare like the U.S. beef system and compared to the Uruguayan beef system, it is quite different in the way that 95% of cattle slaughtered annually in the U.S. Uh, comes from, from the feedlot. So they are finished in the feedlot. And in Uruguay, mm, I don't know the, 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 the updated numbers, but like Four, four years ago, 85 or 90% of the cattle that was annually slaughtered in Uruguay came from, from grazing systems. So the overall system of how we raise uh, cattle in Uruguay is quite different to, to Uruguay. But, but I've heard that nowadays the, the feeder industry in Uruguay is growing substantially. And what about the meat? Again, we'll go to the, the discussion about what is best, like grain-fed mm -hmm. or, or, or grass-fed. I know that uh, in Uruguay we are pretty proud of, of, of the quality of our beef and we usually say that uh, we are worldwide known because of our beef quality but I don't I will be controversial on this and I will say that I, I don't quite agree with that I think that you prefer the US yeah meat? much better and people in the US prefer US beef and and if you and, and but again like this is subjective but mm -hmm. if we put a, a panel of 10 trained professionals mm -hmm. Uh, to determine which beef is best quality, yeah, you just blind them basically and give them uh, a, pi a piece of grain-fed or grass-fed grass -fed beef. The, 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 the results will be will be like 
unanimous and consistent. I yeah. usually go for rain-fed. for grain-fed and highly marbled beef. What do you think? You and again, the market pays you more. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. What do you think Uruguay could improve in their production system? Yeah. So of course, that sitting here drinking my mate, it's easy to say that okay, like uh, we have to produce more grain. I mean, it's not that we have to produce more grain-fed. Like, it's a matter of competitive and comparative advantages. The thing is that producing one kilo of grain-fed beef in Uruguay is pretty expensive. It's much more expensive than producing it in 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 the U.S. And so that was that was basically why we in Uruguay we, we don't feed much cattle in the feedlot. So we have to make make use uh, the best use of our best comparative advantage that is the the natural the native grasslands that we have mm -hmm. and so we have to make the best out of that uh, of that resource but if the if the if cattle prices keep increasing and the 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 credits for producers become keep becoming accessible i i have no doubt that the field industry in europe will will improve and will become more competitive than we are nowadays and alejandro too for high quality beef To round up a little bit, because we're running out of time, okay. unfortunately. Do you have any interesting anecdotes or stories from from your research or your traveling around and and, de mean, and dealing with yeah, all these cows so and steers? And most of my of my scientific or, or research experience has been uh, here in the U.S. between Ohio and Illinois, and so I cannot say that that while doing research something some interesting story or ad anecdotes happen because the, the, the cattle is like pretty used to be around people. So they are pretty easygoing or docile and the facilities that we have allow us to work in a safer environment. But uh, while working in, I used to, before doing my master's, I worked in a, in a fiddler in Australia as a cattle manager for, for almost one year. And yeah, we had, I have some interesting stories back there because, uh, the cattle that we used to receive from very wild areas on, of, of Australia, like the northern, the, nor the northern part of Australia or the, or the middle of Australia is a, is a desert. Uh, those animals are pretty wild because they are not used so, to being with people. So I remember like receiving loads uh, of cattle in the field and when they, when they, when they get down from the, wild. From the truck, 100%. they were like, yeah. they just look at you and like saying, Don't get in front of me because yeah. I crush you. Yeah. But imagine being uh, working a feedlot in the in the farm in Australia, surrounded by one of the one, some of the most poisonous snakes. Yeah. Poisonous mosquitoes, like everything, basically kills you. So wild cattle was just like the the, the last of my con my concerns. Yeah. While working there. <laughs> Did you have any encounters with any of the snakes and all that? Uh, so yeah, like to be honest, at the beginning, so usually snakes they go they go out in summer mm -hmm. when the weather becomes warmer, and I was I was pretty scared about the, the snakes because I've heard so much stories, but the funniest part was that I was the only one scared. Like the Australians, for them it's like yeah, norm it's, it's normal. daily basis. They are used to it. Yeah. yeah, like my first, I remember like one of the first days in summer that I was like very scared about the snakes. Uh, I was living in the farm, so. From the from my house to the to the office was like I don't know five minutes, mm -hmm. and when I got down to the office, I saw my 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 boss that was the general manager with a shovel, uh, fighting a tiger snake. Like a, <laughs> it's like, like a street fight. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, the tigers something particular of, of the tiger snake is that uh, they are not scared of humans. So when when they see you, they don't run away. They will just confront you. 
So of you, course, I, if I saw a couple of times a, a tiger snake in the farm, and I just run away. Run away. <laughs> this guy like grab a shovel and start fighting the the, the snake like in a, in a street fight. That's crazy. No, incredible. <laughs> he was like trying to hit uh, the 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 snake with a shovel, and the shovel was trying to to bite him. And <laughs> I was I couldn't believe what I was seeing with my eyes. But for Australians, it's like normal. That's normal. No, he was <laughs> just he was defending yeah. his territory. Like no snakes in the office. So. Yeah. <laughs> Those Australians got to be tough, tough people. Yeah. Yeah. Alejandro, did you have a good time? A really good time. Thank you so much for coming to San Marcos and doing this. I no, really man. appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So they don't, they don't, perf they don't, do, they don't, good, they don't do good. So they don't, they don't, perf they don't, do, they don't good, they don't do good. So they don't, they don't, perf they don't, do, they don't good, they don't do good. Um, like with a with a, not a with a the the like with a with a, not a with a the the like with a with a, not a with a the the. Thank you for listening to Science Stories.